open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. We continue in our journey here. 21st week that we have dealt with this topic. Um, I'm not sure where the stopping point is going to be or how many weeks it will take for us to get there. Um, Any time you go through a book of the Bible, there's certain passages you get really, really excited about because of the content, because of the truth, because of the impact that it can have. And there's other passages that you would really kind of like to scoot over, either because of complexity or because of perceived difficulty in terms of making it appealing and Genesis chapter 5 is one of those passages. It's a genealogy, right? So you read the genealogy and you go, well, that was interesting. What next? And so we really miss a lot of what God's Word intends to provide to us and for us by way of study. And so chapter 4 begins telling the story of the family of Adam and Eve. They give birth to Cain and then to their son Abel. Cain kills Abel because God rejected his offering and had the audacity to accept Abel's. Cain is cursed by God. He is sent away as a wanderer. He is angry and rebellious and he is determined to live a self-ruled life. That is how Cain leaves the presence of the Lord, how he leaves his parents and goes to live his life as a wanderer. Now, we know from study, and I can't get into all the review, he establishes a city through the uh, the coming of his children. The chapter continues telling us of the establishment of Cain's family. It's clear, as we read through this, that Cain, Cain's family connects the seed of the serpent that was introduced in the curse in Genesis 3.15 into civilization as a whole. So Cain has several sons, but only the fifth son, Lamech, is highlighted, and we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail a little bit later on today. It is likely that Cain had many, many other children beyond those that are listed for us. And we are told that Lamech has two wives, which is an attack against God's design for marriage. And in the passage identifies the four children born to Lamech and the two wives that are mentioned here. But most assuredly, Cain had many, many other children. And potentially would have had many other wives. So if two is better than one, then why wouldn't three be better than two in the mind of a depraved, rebellious, angry person against the statutes of God? Cain, by the way, is estimated to have lived around 700 years. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he actually lived, but extra-biblical sources indicate through the passage of trans, of, um, of uh, lore and tradition that perhaps he lived as long as 700 to 730 years. And based upon what we'll see in this gene- genealogy today, that's probably not too far-fetched. So Lamech, like Cain, had many, many other children, lived a number of years. And so Moses' priority... And just identifying the five sons born to Lamech here, it isn't to develop a a lengthy or a complete genealogy, but what he wants to do is he wants to develop the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that were were a part of the curse issued in chapter 3. It's a main point through all of what Moses has said so far, and he will continue to develop that all throughout the book of Genesis. So the first three children born to Lamech are all boys. Jabal, the father of agricultural development. Jubal, the father of music and culture and the arts. And then Tubal-Cain, the father of metallurgy, which would be used in the development of farming implements. And then as we see from the tail end of this passage, probably even weaponry. 
So nothing is mentioned about the daughter of the fourth child, only her name, Nama. But the name Tubal-Cain is most likely an homage back to Cain, the murderous ancestor. And since Tubal-Cain is the father of weaponry, the, the connection is established between the murderous sin of Cain and his seed being passed down and lived out through the lives of these children that are mentioned here. So these children are going to be instrumental in developing civilization and also driving civilization into an existence that is devoid of God. This is underscored by the Song of Lamech, sometimes also called the Song of the Swords. If you look at the tail end of Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, after the birth of his children and after the development of what it is they've been able to accomplish, this is Lamech's song. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged, sevenfold and Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So it's clear that Cain has shared his story, his expulsion from the area east of Eden, confined to live a life as a wanderer. He shared that story with his great-great-great-grandchildren. And one of the reasons that we know he shared that story is because at this point Cain is alive and well. It's not something that was passed on. It's something that he himself has likely told his kids and repeated this as a part of his badge of honor to rebel against the unjust expectations of God and the rejection of his offering and the rationale behind living our lives by ourselves for ourselves as we see fit. So it's clear that Cain has shared this story. What the Bible doesn't do is give us an age for Cain at this time or any of that other kind of detail. So Lamech imposed in this song of the sword, he imposes fear upon his wives and he ruled over them with force, which also brings us back to the curse that is issued as a part of the fall. And he either has killed or will kill anyone who opposes him. And this is highlighted by the fact that he says, I have killed a boy for injuring me. So either he has or will kill anyone who opposes him or even injures him, no matter who they are, how young they might be. This is an indication that Lamech's children have inherited from Cain the seed of the serpent, and through Tubal-Cain, Lamech is now singing and celebrating the violent streak of revenge that is going to be his, it's going to be indicative of the seed of the serpent, and it's what is passed down throughout all of civilization. Now, if you're not convinced of that, just over the weekend, Islamic militants began lobbing missiles over into Israel, and Israel is at war. This has been going on for a long, long, long time. This kind of opposition between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's lived out in our lives even today, even though we ourselves are not in Israel and are not Jewish people. 
So the sin that began in the garden led to murder within the first family. And just a few generations later, it is clear that Cain's line is going to exponentially increase sin and rebellion in the world. Now that's a summary or a review of about three weeks worth of messages. So all of that is designed to help you connect to what it is we're going to talk about today. So we continue with number nine in our outline, and that is Seth's family. Now to be very honest and very clear with you, this, these two verses we're going to look at are actually connected into the previous section of the family of Cain. It is a closure to his family, although it's not a descendant of Cain, and it's also an introduction into this next section. So it's a little bit disjointed and not preferably the way that I would do it, but needed to do it for the sake of time, and, and this is likely going to be longer than I would uh, prefer for it to be today. So here's what it says in 4.25 and 26. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enoch. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is really a bit of an introduction. It's closure and it's introduction. So these two verses are not to be understood chronologically. Seth was not born after Lamech and after his four children and after the development of all the things that are recognized here in the Hebrew words and in the literary style. Moses has gone back in time to identify that after the killing of Abel, they had another child, and this child was named Seth. So although Cain's sons have prospered and become the founders of the new world after the fall, the focus of the narrative turns from the line of Cable, excuse me, from the line of Cain to that of the new son born in place of Abel, and that is Seth. So there is a comparison and a contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth that is going to be explained to us in chapter 5, which leads into the universal flood of chapter 6. So this introduction serves as a contrast between the godless line of Cain and what is being restored through the line of Seth and the seed of the woman. Eve named him Seth because she said, God has granted me another child. Seth means granted or God granted. This son is the seed of the woman from whose line will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's why it's included here at the tail end of of the, um, the family of Cain and as an introduction into the family of Seth. So that which was lost in Abel is now, has now been granted again in Seth. So the seed of Cain, which is the seed of the serpent, will plummet man into deeper sin and rebellion. And the seed of the woman, realized again in Seth, will bring about hope and blessing. A part of the contrast and a part of the comparison. Seth has a son. His name is Enosh. Enosh means, I didn't get that up there, I'm sorry. Enosh means weakness. Combined with the context of verse 26, weakness does not indicate something 
something physical, well, he was a weakling, or he had no backbone, or anything of that nature. It refers to something spiritual, because what does it say? Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. One commentator put it like this, it is the consciousness of human frailty symbolized by the name Enosh that heightens man's awareness of utter dependence upon God. Nothing like that exists within the line of Cain. Nothing like that can exist in the seed of the serpent because the seed of the serpent is universally opposed to the rule of God, the person of God, the worship of God, the surrender to God, the obedience to God. Just make the list as long as you want it to be. So here is the contrast. Although Cain's line is going to develop culture and civilization in a very profound way, it is from the line of Seth that hope and blessing are going to be restored as men call upon the name of the Lord. The line of Seth is credited with calling upon the name of the Lord, of worshiping God, of being a spiritual people who desire to know the Lord. Now, as you take a snapshot of our culture today, not even a worldly culture, or a worldwide culture rather, but an American culture, what part of American culture is rooted in a desire to worship God, to know God, to proclaim God? What part of it? Is it in the media? Is it in education? Is it in government? It is amazing to me to think that in just about 300 years, universities that were originally established for the proclamation of the gospel now deny even the very existence of a God and oppose the very truths that their university was established upon. In just a very short order, that is the reality in our educational system. What part of government is about worshiping God, honoring God, proclaiming God, even though America was established on Judeo-Christian ethic We want to rewrite the Constitution and make it a godless existence so that what the world, the culture has to offer is forefront and celebrated and God is just kind of left off the shelf. It's just amazing what has happened in a very short amount of time. So the ongoing enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is now in place through the line of Cain and now the line of Seth, which restores that which was lost at the murder of Abel. So as we turn to chapter 5, we see an indication that this is a new book within the Genesis account by the word identified here in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, the word generations. Now the book of Genesis has what, 51 chapters and so when you talk about a book, you're not talking about a chapter, you're talking about the 51 chapters that are now divided into sections 10 books and that division is indicated by the usage of the word generations. The Hebrew word that signifies that is the word toledot and that means we're now working on a new section. So the first book, which is Genesis 1-1 through 4-26, is the generations of the heavens and the earth, even though it explains to us the line of Adam and explains worth the seed motif. Now, the second book is going to be Genesis 5-1 through Genesis 6-8, and that is going to tell us of the generations of Adam. 
It's complicated how that works, but that's just the way that it is. Time does not allow me to really break that down. So we're going to read together to begin Genesis 5, 1 through 5. I have some comments about that, and then we're, excuse me, 1 through 2, and then we're going to have some comments about that and work our way through. So this is the book of the generations, Taladot, in Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So while this will tell of the descendants of Adam, the focus is on the godly line that will come from Adam through Seth. So this introduction, these these introductory verses are first and foremost a reminder. There's a reminder here that is directed towards the line of Seth. This is the book of the generations of Adam and the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So the reminder is this. Mankind is created in God's image. So Moses begins a genealogy reminding the line of Seth that they were created in God's image. Now the image of God in man is irrevocably tarnished through the sin of Adam, but it is not lost. God did not erase the image of God that man is created in, it's tarnished. And so Moses wants to remind the line of Seth, you have been created in the image of God. He's emphasizing the importance of remembering whose image they bear and God's intention for creation. Would it make any difference in our lives if we reminded ourselves before our feet hit the ground, I have been created in the image of God with the purpose of knowing Him and making Him known. Would that have any impact on our lives? It should. It should root us in the reality that our life is not about ourselves. It's not about our jobs. It's not about our families. It's not about the long list of things we got to do. Our life is about are being created in the image of God and fulfilling His purposes in and through our lives. So the line of Seth is linked to this image, while Cain's is not. There's nothing in the description of Cain's ancestry where there is a reminder of that image of God in which they have been created. It's indicating that his line does not reflect God's image. It doesn't mean that they are still not created in the image of God, but there's just nothing about the line of Cain. There's nothing about the seed of the serpent that is going to reflect the line, excuse me, reflect the reality that we've create, been created in the image of God. Not true for the line of Seth. So the reminder here, letter B, is that we are still under the blessing. You have been created in the image of God, and you are still under the blessing. Verse 2. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now, it wasn't necessary for Moses to go back and recite all the detail of creation and the nuances of what this means. But the image of God had not been obliterated, and the blessing of God in procreation and multiplication to fill the earth and subdue it had not been revoked. This is still central to the purpose of man, to multiply, to fill the earth, to govern over it as a delegate of God Almighty who created it and passed that on to us as his image bearer. 
So this is the reminder that God, that Moses is giving to the line of Seth and to its readers, likely written during the wilderness wanderings. It's a reminder to the nation of Israel and all that God has said to them. And so we look at number two in our outline as now we look at the genealogy. So as we move into the, remind, the remainder of chapter five and the detail of this ancestry, there are a few things that I think help us if we will keep them in mind. Letter A is the genealogy is linear. Linear meaning that he is only going to identify the firstborn in each generation and only the first son within each generation. He isn't going to list every single descendant that comes from the line of Seth. In fact, he's only going to identify ten, which is a way to quickly provide great depth in the genealogy, and to highly compress the timeline. Now, if Moses was to write out the line of Seth and absolutely every person that was born to him, you probably wouldn't be able to get through it. You just wouldn't. Not central to Moses' point. His point is reminding the people about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and this enmity between them and how this is being fleshed out through these two lines. So other genealogical types can list each descendant and provide great breadth, but that isn't Moses' objective. There's also a linear genealogy of ten given for Abraham a little bit later in Genesis, but when you get to Genesis 10... There is a broader genealogy to explain what's going on through the line of Noah, a subset of the line of Seth. So the first thing to remember is that this is linear. Letter B, it is selective. He's only going to list the firstborn son in each successive generation to the tenth individual, not each child born to each of these sons. As we'll see in the reading, there is the phrase, and he had many other sons and daughters which is a way of saying this is not an exhaustive list. There are many, many other children born to this individual, but we're only highlighting the one. So as we'll see in the reading, there is this reminder. It isn't that these people aren't important. It just means that they don't fit Moses' purpose. Third thing to remember, letter C, it is theological. Linear, it is um, selective, and it is theological. So Moses' main priority is to develop the seed motif, the seed of the serpent clearly described through the line of Cain, and now the seed of the woman developed through the line of Seth, from whose line the one would come who is going to crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse issued in Genesis chapter 3. So the seed motif is central to the book of Genesis and to the Bible in many, many ways as the spiritual battle for man is waged between these two seeds. You've probably not thought about it, but your very life is a spiritual battle over who you will surrender to, who you will listen to, who you will follow, either one from the seed of the serpent or one from the seed of the woman through the line of Seth, 
through the line of David, to the coming of the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, there's a great deal more that could be said regarding this, but time would never allow it. So as we quickly read through the genealogy, you will notice some obvious differences from the genealogy of Cain. The genealogy of Cain gives no ages. Nobody is listed in how long they live. Since his line, being cursed by God, therefore would have no eternal history in terms of its identification. Seth's genealogy not only gives the age of each patriarch at the time of the firstborn, but it also provides a number of years that he lived after the birth and the total years for their life, indicating that there is something long-lasting, something amazing about the line of Seth. Now, Seth's genealogy not only gives the age of each part, excuse me, now the long number of years is historical. It's not to be understood as something figurative. It's not something that is to be understood mythologically. It is historical reality of the number of years that were lived before the curse that came from the flood. So those who are 80 and in this day and age right now could not imagine living to 800, could you? You say, I'm 80, what would it be like if I were 100? Good night, what would it be if I was 500? And 900, what would I do? Well, life at 500 may have been life at our current age of 50. We have no way of knowing that. I'm a little reluctant to say it's like dog years, because I think that's a myth as well. But the reality is, people lived a very, very long time because the curse had not infiltrated our bodies in the way that it has now. God set limits after the flood. The genetics within man was just remarkable in the beginning and through this initial period. So men had the capacity to live incredibly long amounts of times. So we also see that this record indicates that they had many other sons and daughters. So what's interesting to think about is that there are some estimates that at the time of the flood, which is going to be chronicled here for us shortly, there would have been hundreds of millions of people at the time of the flood. Can you can you imagine that? Well, wait a minute, there's only like 25 people listed. How could that even be? Because again, Moses' point doesn't fit with a breadth of genealogy, a very compressed linear genealogy, and some of the most aggressive estimates say that there could have been billions of people alive at the time of the flood. We don't know, we can only speculate. But it doesn't take very long for lives lived eight, nine hundred years with many other sons and daughters to multiply into an incredibly large number of people. This reminded me when I was a kid, I was sometimes asked, if you could take a million dollars today, or you could take a penny and double it every day for 30 days, which would you take? Oh, I'd take, them. I'd take the million dollars, right? A million bucks. A penny doubled every day for 30 days, what's that going to be? Well, that's going to be actually $5,368,709. The process of multiplication is incredible, and this is what takes place in this very complex, very compressed linear genealogy that is explained for us here in the book of Genesis. Civilization multiplied very, very quickly. The last thing we would note is that with each of these ten patriarchs, there is a grim reminder that through the sin of Adam, each of these will die with a single exception, the curse being passed on to each successive generation. And in the Hebrew, in this explanation, it is a single word, died. 
It recounts the name of the patriarch, the individual born, the age at the the age of the patriarch at the time he was the son was born, the total length of the age of that patriarch, and then it's concluded with died. It's a it's a grim reminder of the curse given because of Adam's sin passed on even through the line of Seth with one exception we'll look at in just a minute of the ongoing curse. There's some really amazing things that we're going to flesh out as a part of this. So number three in our outline we're looking from Seth to Noah. The focus of the genealogy is going to shift from Seth to Noah which enables Moses to provide a very compressed history which will enable us to get to the flood very, very quickly. So we're going to read together, beginning in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. In the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years and after became the father of Kenan. He had many, he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 859 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, personally, I'm very, very glad that this is not a broad genealogy. I just couldn't get myself to not read this. But we have this pause here with the birth of Enoch, and this is an incredible account. Now, it's incredible on its face because of what it says, but it's also incredible for what is inferred as a foreshadowing, which is very, very quickly lost and through a very quick and cursory reading of this genealogy. So we look at this incredible account and we find the exception of Enoch. Enoch is the only person in the Bible that does not physically die. He walked with God and he was not for God took him. Well, we say, what about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus died. Jesus raised him, but Lazarus died again, right? Enoch is the only person who lived who did not die. The New Testament speaks to this miracle in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Since Moses wants to highlight and contrast the line of Cain with the line of Seth, it is significant in their place within each genealogy. Now, Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam in Seth's line, including Adam, you count through there. Enoch is the seventh of that genealogy, of that line. The contrast of that is Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam in Cain's line. So these two are placed as eternal opposites. They are hell and heaven, exponential death, and unbounded life. Enoch walked with God. It is a description that is going to be given to Noah, that Noah also walked with God. And while it is significant that Enoch did not die and miraculously avoided the curse of sin and death, the point is, is that he is an example of those who find life in the midst of the curse. In Enoch, Moses is able to show that the pronouncement of death is not the last word that need be said about a man's life. One can find life if one walks with God. For mankind, a door is left open for a return to the tree of life in the garden. Enoch found that door in his walking with God, and in so doing, has become a model for all who seek to find life in the midst of the curse. So as you look at this genealogy, Lamech is celebrated as the incarnation of evil within the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, in a very highlighted way in Moses' writing, and to parallel and contrast that, you have this figure Enoch, born as a part of the line of Seth, who does not die physically as a result of the curse, but miraculously is whisked away as a foreshadowing of the life that is found for those who walk with God. This is the same challenge that God extends to Abraham at the giving of the covenant to Abraham to walk with me. Genesis 17.1 Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Just as Enoch walked with me and found life, you too are to walk with me and find the life that I provide. In other words, walking with me, you will escape the curse of death. Now, Abram is not whisked away like Enoch was, but he certainly escaped the curse of sin and spiritual death because he is the epitome of faith and going to a place that God would show him. This same message is extended to the nation of Israel as they stood on the edge of the promised land. God said to them in Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 16, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply 
and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land which where you are entering to possess it. Through the grace of God, through the immense blessing of God, man can find life in the midst of the curse as foreshadowed in the miraculous whisking away of Enoch as identified here in the line of Seth. This same message is also extended by Jesus in the New Testament. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what God extends to us. And He didn't have to do that. It's a blessing that comes from the line of Seth in the midst of this curse. We who are born and bear the image of God as a part of the seed of, of the woman, the benefactors of the one who crushed the head of the serpent, bear the image of God. And we are to make that light known because it provides life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, as a part of His great proclamation, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. Oh, that we would understand that. That we would really wrestle with what that means. That we would repent from the sin that we allow to dictate and dominate our lives and furthermore the image of God in which we have been created, through which has been restored through the one that, is, that has crushed the, the head of the serpent. God, would you raise up within us a desire to truly know you and to surrender to you, to serve you, to make you known. To fight with all our strength against that which you have set us free from. So that we could walk in life, experience life, celebrate victory in this life. As a foreshadowing of what is to come. An eternity in your presence forever and ever, time without end. Speak to your church. Speak to your children. Pray in Jesus' name. As we finish this up, um, we continue in the genealogy. You've got a, a few more minutes still. So, Methuselah lived 187 years, became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after, became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters so all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem Ham and Japheth in the line of Seth Moses to the 10th descendant 
brings to us Noah and the introduction of his three sons, which is a contrast to the three sons of Lamech. You can't see the uh, pyramid there. So out of the sons of Lamech, you have Jubal, Jubal Tubal Cain, the celebrated identified seed of the serpent through the line of Cain, and then through the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, you have the highland of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now this will enable Moses to introduce the flood narrative in chapter 6, six and following, and then announce his death very late in chapter 9. And so this break from the genealogical pattern is important. Verse 29 tells the reader that Noah will bring comfort from the labor and painful toil of the curse. This is a connection back to Enoch and a foreshadowing of what's going to come through the flood and Moses and his family, excuse me, Noah and his family being saved from the flood. So in light of Genesis 8.21, which you've not gotten to yet, it is likely that the comfort that Noah brought was the salvation of mankind in the ark, as well as the restitution of sacrifice that is going to come after the flood. So we read in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Then, excuse me, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So, in so doing, Noah averted any future destruction of mankind until the end of judgment. So, secondly, the flood narrative describes that Noah and his family were the sole survivors. So, Enoch was rescued from death because he walked with God. And this is the basis for Noah's rescue from death and the flood, as we see in Genesis 6-9, Noah walked with God. So there's a parallel here, mixed in this genealogy that we're going to see repeated in the flood narrative as it relates to Noah. So in the story of Noah and the flood, the author is able to repeat the lesson of Enoch, life comes through walking with God. Nobody walked with God with the exception of Noah and his family. So estimates are that approximately 15, 1600 years has passed from Adam to the birth of Noah. That's a lot of years compressed in this very linear genealogy. This sets a stage for the catastrophic universal flood. But before we get there, next week we're going to look at what is universally accepted as the most complicated passage in all of Genesis, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and it gives a greater explanation why the flood actually came. So there's a lot there. A lot more than most would even begin to think about, and that's why it's so important that we find scholars and authors who can help us dig the truth out that isn't so apparent in the cursory reading. I want to take you back to the reality of what Moses' objective is, is to highlight the seed of the serpent through Cain, his murderous act passed through Lamech, the development of civilization that is godless and rebellious, And the line of the seed of the woman, probably going to be passed on through Abel, but in his death replaced in Seth, 
who is the seed of the woman from whose loins Noah and those who are going to be pivotal in the redevelopment of civilization are going to come. The one whose line can be tracked back to Dave, through David to Noah and then from Jesus to David who is the one who actually crushes the curse, the head of the serpent. Life is found in walking with God. We don't do that perfectly. We cannot do that perfectly. What we cannot do, Jesus has done for us. It is our our faith in Him, the finished work of the cross that makes us acceptable to God. And those who profess to know Jesus ought to take very, very seriously the reality that we are created in His image for His purpose not the very least of which, is to live life in the midst of the curse of death and to share that as we go. Would you join me in prayer?